listening to Marconi Island and WFMU. I'm your host, Devin Levins, every Tuesday from 8 to 9 p.m. playing the soundtrack hits. This week is no exception. We have an illustrious guest joining us. It's Dan Wool, San Francisco-based composer, has over 55 credits for TV, film, documentaries, maybe most well-known for his collaborations with Alex Cox, the director, starting with uh, 1986's 
Sid and Nancy, Straight to Hell, uh, many throughout the years. I think even recently, we may get into some of that. Uh, his sister, Abby Wool's Roadside Prophets, a cult classic. Most recently, getting a lot of attention is Phil Tippett's 30 years in the making stop motion animation masterpiece, Mad God, in theaters now in like IFC in New York and elsewhere. Uh, also, I guess it debuted on Shudder, and it can be seen there. I believe it's the most watched uh, new release on Shudder or something like that, I read. Uh, but welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. It's 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 a pleasure to be here. So I, I think maybe we should start with Mad God for sure and um, how you got involved and to get into what the project is. And it, it, it definitely seems to be an undertaking, not only because it was 30 years in the works, and, you know, kind of this precious baby for the director-animator, Phil Tippett, but it's driven <laughs> by the music. There's no dialogue, and it's entirely music throughout and sound design. So you getting hired on could make or break this endeavor, right? Yeah, no, apparently there was, I mean, and I, I, the story goes that there was another guy that, that took a shot at it before me that just apparently really helped me out because he did a terrible job and everybody hated it. It was very much, all, I, if, you're, if anybody is familiar with Mad God, it's very dark. It's got a lot of dark imagery. And the the thing that he, and I heard it, it was, you know, it was fine, but it was just this very dark, medley thing. And it was very much on the money. Um, and so it was, and I... I can do stuff like that, but I generally have a little, basically a career um, carved out from, from creating counterpoint when, when possible. I mean, Sid and Nancy, uh, it was, that was all very much sort of counterpoint, but, but Phil really liked the stuff that I sent, uh, that I sent in. That was just very, just what, what, more or less what's in the, what's in the film now. I don't, the demos, the very first demo right off, right out of the gate went into the film. So it's the same take that I did that I started on this project in 2009 Wow, um, is when I first started talking to Phil about it. And I, I think that's around when I started with it. I mean, of course, it would take years off between these things. And so um, basically he really liked the idea of having something that was counter tonal to the, to the imagery. And I think I knew that I had met him and we had talked and I kind of figured him, you know, he was, I got along with him and we had similar taste in music and there's other, you know, and other sort of arty things. And he was very much, he, he's very much uh, comes from an artistic background, and and so I just did sort of what I felt would work, which is you know just something against the image, against the darkness, and just sort of it's not happy music, but it is definitely <laughs> something else. It doesn't look exactly like it sounds. So it's a strange soundtrack um, when you get it away from the from the images. It, I think it holds together, but it's a very different sort of feel when you get it away from the images. Well, it definitely drives it. It drives the narrative of the film itself, you know, it pushes it forward, I think. It's constant. It's been referred to as a flotation device. Oh, right. <laughs> the people that can like, because like, apparently a lot of people will end up closing their eyes during this film. I mean, it's that disturbing. I mean, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, I don't, I didn't find it that disturbing, but people really find it disturbing and so people said they close their eyes and then they and that's when they first notice the music oh really yeah yeah so i'm there for you i can help you through this ordeal well it's interesting because yeah the most hummable maybe or most memorable theme of it you know this comes back in variations as soundtracks and scores often do it that kind of evokes some of your earlier work too just with the it's kind of like spaghetti western-esque big chords you know that almost sound like you could strum them you know strum them on a guitar even though yeah. it's not necessarily always a guitar 
as the instrumentation, but uh, yeah, I can't get away from them. I mean, I I don't always try. Um, I mean, I, I rarely try to get away from Morricone, but yes, it's clearly a lot of instrumentation actually, and there's a lot of out of tune pianos. I mean, I think Morricone in some one of his scores, there's like an army of like pianos that he does, like just lots of. It sounds as I mean, and I and I recorded every piano I could playing like a few of these phrases. I have a piano here. I have sampled pianos and I sampled a couple other pianos around or just whenever I had with my with my recorder. Yeah. Just playing a few of these phrases. So it's like this big army of pianos, which so I kind of, I borrow from Morricone as we all do. <laughs> as all, like virtually all contemporary composers yeah. will borrow from Morricone. Right. Borrow being the word we use. Where did you start? Like, did you start from the beginning and was it films? And sequentially as well, you know, from the beginning to end, as you see it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is a, most people may know, or a lot of people may know, that it was filmed in chapters, and so like the, it was done in Kickstarter chunks, so they could do like the first chapter um, was it was a chunk, and they kind of you know funded that and just kind of got enough money to sort of just do the nuts and bolts of the first one, and that one went well, and they did another one, and then the th- I guess they did three of them, and then the fourth one they just. They found fun. Phil found funding from other places and just got it all together. Um, and so added actually, there's almost an hour from uh, added after the three chapters that we did sort of uh, as episodes. Um, but yeah, sort of sequentially. And so the first the first thing I saw was in my in my memory. It's been a long time now. Was uh, sort of a test they had because Phil had filmed uh, a lot of stuff back in the '90s with on 35 millimeter film and so they and the new people came in and saw that and they wanted to extend the film and so they needed to shoot it uh, digitally and so a lot of it was a test to see if they could successfully um uh do the old film would cut together with with digital stop motion um and it did and so and so that's kind of what i saw was that sort of test to see it had new had some of his phil's old stuff and some new stuff and it looked totally transparent and like it just worked flawlessly and so that was like I remembered as like nine minutes long that had more or less the same sort of story that we see in this full length 83, I can't remember, 83 minute version, but very short. And after that, he found ways to sort of extend each of these chunks. So it became the feature that it is. Had you ever scored for animation over the years? No, I don't think I... Yeah, I'm sure I have. I've done. I, I I have a very strange winding road career that does many things. And uh, oh yeah, I have. I have very th- things here and there. And then a lot of TV uh, commercials in which a lot of that ends up being animated. But not not no stop motion projects that I recall. And so it was very a very different world. And I wasn't actually all that initiated into that. I mean, there is a very devout, enthusiastic stop motion community which i learned about as i went along and so yeah i didn't know much about that either i was just regular film score guy was uh, phil actively involved with the music or did he kind of let you do your your own thing no he he listened to a lot of my material like all the stuff like weirdly like kind of on his own he'd like done all his research on my background or not my background but on my catalog i guess and just decided that I would be somebody that he would like to, you know, check it out. And plus, I was getting along with him, and we seemed to be, you know, uh, we, we, we got along sort of on a sort of aesthetic level. And so he just sort of, I think he made a lot of that decision from the research. And so he, uh, Alex Cox, works this way as well, sort of picks his creative heads and goes with them. And he lets, in, in a lot of times, just sort of let me go. He had very little, very little direction. He was pretty much hands off as it gets, 
Um, he trusted us. He liked what I did. I mean, there was times when he would have suggestions or he, he, he things that the film needed, but it was pretty rare. He was very much, it was very open. It was a very much an open process between me and Richard Beggs, the sound designer. He also was had sort of free reign to do a lot of things. Yeah, so it was, it, it was very different than virtually every other project I've ever worked on in that regard. What was the instrumentation that you were leaning on and why did you choose it in particular? I mean, I think I know what it is, but it seems like there were xylophones and is that a Glock? What's driving that? Is that a Glock well, and spill? Is that a xylophone? Uh, there's that. There's all kinds of things. I mean, I would say the main, uh, so the, like, the main theme that comes in with is a guitar, just sort of a, a strummy guitar, which in 2009 was something, something I would grab more. Like, it's weird. Like, it, guitars have sort of, Fade been phased out the last few years, um, so yeah, a lot of decisions like that I might not do now. But the in- instrumentation is guitar, that piano army, um, which includes I have like a stand-up piano, um, uh, upright piano that is tack piano that's all out of tune, and it's like a lot of that was featured. And so and then just various synthesizers like prepared prepared piano, prepared piano type thing. Yeah, yeah, prepared piano. I mean, tack piano is technically a prepared piano, um, which just a yeah. sort of old timey. It's the it's the original prepared piano. I was wondering because there is some like out of tune. It's like that could be a, it's affected a lot. So yeah, is that a piano or is that some strange instrument? You know. Yeah, and there is also <laughs> a, a fair amount of prepared piano in the in the Cajun sense as well, and then prepared guitar. A lot of like yank putting things into the basses and just like making it so it buzzes and makes weird strange sounds. And so a lot of out of or alternate tuning that kind of impossible to get back to kind of tunings that are in there. So, but it's mostly those things, and then a l- army of synthesizers. Um, everything I have that came through the years, and there's like stuff in there, in the first chapter that I don't own anymore, so I really can't get back to. I've recorded stems, so I can get back to it. But there's certain synthesizers that are broken or gone, mm. and then yeah, and I just you know once kind of it was pretty much those two things. Then I and then just like whatever synthesizers I had in in this in the studio at the time. Also, vocals, choir. Oh yeah, that's true. That's true. That's I right. I saw at the you, end that there was credit to no, that was which some, I didn't hear. I didn't hear it much, so I was wondering. Like it, it doesn't pop out like <laughs> typically a choir would, I guess. It's a weird thing. Yeah, no, it's a it's a yodel choir. So there's a yodeler on top of it, and then a choir background. And that was a there was a piece that that they had put in there that they, everybody liked that was that they tried to license, um, which is sort of a yodel choir, but no one can find who performed it. It was just some weird old recording. And since they couldn't find nail it down, I I did sort of kind of a sound alike or did something that's very similar to what was there. And so I, I found a guy that yodeled. And so that was that's actually the very last cue of the film. So is is that thing not to spoil anything for anybody, but there's yodeling at the end. Don't be surprised. There's also a great, great piece, which I'd love for the listeners to hear. Maybe we'll play it right now. Uh, the the maggots entitled <laughs> maggots on the on the waxwork release, but uh, it's almost like an a, an exotica lounge almost. I don't know, evoking like Les Baxter or Martin yeah. Denny or something like that. How did how did that come about? Uh, yeah, so there was again there was they almost never. There's only like a few places in the film where they would put a temp score, which is uh, I mean temp score is something that generally editors will put in there that give the composers a guide to work to, and they didn't have anything at all except for this scene, the maggot scene, as well as the yodeling scene. Most of it was that. But so they had something had a similar kind of goofy feel to it, but was very vocal, acapella. It was really goofy. 
but it was beautiful and I couldn't have I couldn't have done any, anything better so I just try to hold different take on it and did this sort of lounge yeah. orchestral lounge back rockian kind of I don't know what it is. I mean, it's kind of like it gives you a little break, right? It is a break. From all the constant <laughs> dark moments of the whole film. Yeah, it's effectively the opposite of the rest of the f- score in a way. I mean, it is, yeah, it, yeah. It's in a way it's less counterpoint than it is the rest of it. Because the scene has got lots of bright, funny characters. I mean, they're maggots that are kind of weird and disgusting. But right. um, but it is, it is very, the whole, pe- the whole, it is sort of a break in the film. So Counterintuitive for ma- maggots i guess but uh the music like beautiful music yeah. over maggots a visual, not to give anything <laughs> away but it's sort of like a lullaby in a horror film or something right it's like yeah uh, i don't think you can give anything any description like once you go to see it, it it does it does you can't really describe this film it's indescribable oh, well it's interesting what people <laughs> come up with i mean there's people who come up with their own yeah i'm sure what's so they come up everybody has not everybody but often they have their own weird takes which are great and Phil loves every all of them. He loves hearing everybody's weird takes on it, and it was designed exactly to do that, to have your own, to fill in your own blanks, to fill in your own ideas about this film, and it really does that successfully. And no, no, no dialogue helps that, obviously, but just a lot of... It's just interesting that all the different narratives people pull out of it. He has his own ideas about it, um, but they're not that specific. Right. But, <laughs> but everybody has their own their own take. So. Well, let's, let's let the listeners get a uh, taste of what we're discussing here again it's the track maggots from my guest dan wool's latest score from phil tippett's mad god and it's available they're taking um pre-order 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 waxwork record yeah waxworks record waxwork records.com it's a double vinyl that will be coming out with colored you know you know they usually jazz it up quite a bit so at least yes. two two albums with a colored vinyl, and I think there's some splatter in there, as I've seen, that's expected to be released before Christmas or the holidays. Yeah, so yeah, waxworkrecords.com. Um, yeah, it's a, yeah, go, go on down there. It is, yeah, the, we worked really hard on the package, so it should be beautiful and really nice. Also go to my guest website, prayforrain.com. Yes, or danwool.com. Or danwool.com. Takes, you, takes that you to that same, same place. place so, yeah. And we'll be right back here on WFMU, more Coney Island. Thank you. 
You just heard Maggots, and I threw in the Yodel track, Woken, from Mad God, a new release on Waxwork Records by my guest Dan Wolf, the composer, and it's from the new stop-motion animation release out now in some theaters. I know it's at IFC still in New York City. See it on a screen, but if you can't, there's also Shudder, uh, the streaming service where you can also see it as well. So if if you don't mind, I'd love to go back to some of your, your beginnings. Sure. My beginnings. I mean, I f- first became aware of you more from your soundtrack band or your band, that San Francisco-based band called Pray for Rain. And it was because I was seeing it in connection with a lot of um, uh, films that I was seeing at the time in the late 80s, mid to late 80s, uh, most notably Alex Cox's. But I know that you, you actually started before that I guess with a band called the Strikers out of St. Louis. Is that where you grew up? Oh, we are going back to the beginning. Yeah, so that was the band that I moved out here with. My band, we like were very young and just moved to San Francisco to become whatever it is you do when you're when you're that age. Um, yeah, and so that was more of a proper. I wouldn't say punk. It was more of a post-punk band. Yeah, we moved. Out. But dating back to like 1980ish or late 70s. Yeah, 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 early 80s. Yeah, you were the singer and guitarist for that. Yep, I was yeah. a singer for the, for the Strikers uh, and for Pray for Rain. Um, what happened to the Strikers? Oh, you know, we moved. We were from Missouri. We like within we were we had all these big plans, and like within six months, it was kind of clear everything changed when you move from <laughs> Missouri to San Francisco. And it wasn't a breakup. It was just we just sort of wandered in different directions, and we're still friends. But it, yeah, it was interesting. Everybody just sort of like, oh no, we just gonna do different things here. One guy got way more into country music i got way more into sort of you know punk pop you know post-punk stuff another guy went into super poppy things and we just got different tastes like when you change the environment it changes the people did everyone stay in san francisco or did or there's like certain people yeah. that had to get out <laughs> um the keyboard player uh jane fujimoto in the famous band from st louis called the welders she moved to st- i mean she moved she joined the strikers um after she was with the welders um she moved to los angeles at a certain point yeah but people did music continue to do music it sounds like yeah she did for sure um uh, yeah, and everybody does some music on their on the side. I'm the only one I think that does it for a living. How did Pray for Rain come together? So that was the band after that. So I would after I sort of wandered away from from the Strikers. Um, I I found these other guys here in San Francisco. They'd also moved from the Midwest, and they we started a band. We initially were called Big Race, but then there was like five other big bands. It was like the time for Big Country, and <laughs> there was all these big bands, and we decided we didn't want to be a big big band so so we searched for that name and we added a bass player a different bass player uh, gary brown was his name other two partners in that in that collaboration was paul troopin and jim woody so that was pray for rain almost the entire time i mean at a certain point and paul passed away in 92 i think but we continued on as a soundtrack the three as a soundtrack entity um the three of us after that had you released anything before sid and nancy like was there no, nothing's ever got released. No, yeah. uh, we we tried and we tried to get. So we were back in that day. The, the the old the name of the game was to get signed, which is a strange thing now because a lot of bands, that's that's not. I mean, they would like to get signed. It's not why people are in bands. But in that time frame, you were in a band to get signed. It was just that was it. I don't even really know what that means at this point. But that <laughs> was the goal, um, and so. Yeah, and we never got signed, and so we just kept working it. And so, but I knew Alex through various 
you know, through my sister who went to school with him in, in, in L.A., UCLA. And I just knew him through that and, like, became friends with him through her. And he liked Prairie for Rain. And, like, once they started working on Sid and Nancy, I just gave him some demo. Are you the connection for Alex Cox in yeah. Mad God? Are you? Yeah. Oh, right. So, yeah. So, Mad God, Alex Cox is, is the, actually the only human in Mad God. Um, and so that, yeah, all roads in my career kind of lead back to Alex Cox. I was working on a project for Alex, a later project called Searchers 2.0 that Tippett did uh, visual effects for. Phil Tippett owns a company, Tippett Studios. I can't remember if you said that, but yeah. <laughs> um, but Tippett Studios do, is a visual effects house, and they do a lot of stuff. I mean, they do a lot of stop motion, but they also do, you know, digital CG and all this kind of stuff. And they did work for Alex's film, and that's how I met. I mean, for Alex's film, and then that's how I met Phil. They knew each other. <laughs> Sounds like. All right. Oh, so yeah. So they they had known each other just because they've been around in the business and Sid and Nancy. I mean, that was a pretty big movie for both Alex and I would assume you getting the getting to do the music was a great opportunity for you. Um, and an actual soundtrack came out with some of your music in there. Yeah. Uh, w- yeah, it was. It was. So is that is that you singing for like money? Money, guns, and coffee. That's like straight, straight to hell, right? Oh, on money, guns, and yeah, that's me singing. That's you. So that's straight to hell. Yeah, 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 yeah. And same thing. Like, there's a song with vocals and roadside profits as well, right? That yeah, that one's a little. I'm a little happier with that one. Actually, you're happier so. with that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> you never know. Like, you know, as a composer, you bring in music musicians from all walks of life. Sometimes, like who's close, <laughs> who's a friend of a friend, who's available, you know, so. Especially in the budgets with the films that I work on, so. Also, just this kind of a weird through line that I noticed. seems like you have worked for a lot of films that uh, kind of have, as a main actor, a musician. Is that just a coincidence? <laughs> I guess so. I mean, we have John Doe and, 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 and Adam Horowitz yeah. in Roadside Profits, my sister's debut and farewell film. Um, like David Johansson, isn't oh right, David jo- oh yeah, right, David Johansson, in Adam Ant I saw in one. That's true. I, I can't say I've I seen not, that one. I guess I must have made this connection at some point, but I've forgotten that 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 was a connection. But they're all, yeah, a, yeah, rock stars trying to be actors. It's a it's a dubious prospect. <laughs> it can go either way. Alex Cox seemed to embrace that. So I was yeah, I was sort of wondering, or these people that were maybe fans of Alex Cox films, and they they're like, oh, we need the guy that. Scored that? For no, I don't reason. think Adam Ant had any. No, <laughs> not you. That, that's a whole other story. I mean, yeah, Adam Ant didn't know I scored that film. He didn't uh-huh. know anything about me. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, I mean, maybe the directors found you through. Uh, well, yeah. Like I mean, Alex it, Cox fans or something. Yeah. No. I mean, Sid Nancy to this day for his, well, it's an old credit, but <laughs> a very old credit. But it is still a calling card for a lot of people. People, not everybody, but a lot of people know that that score and they know that film and so and it is it did that film that score taught me so much because it's like the all the everything you hear all if you go back and listen to that film um or watch that film the score is is all counterpoint but i everything i composed was for different scenes than where it was used so and i so i would send a bunch of stuff and i like from reading the script but then the editor had the foresight to put it over like that. I would not have thought to put that piece of music over the garbage falling from the sky, which is sort of a seminal slow or a very classic slow motion shot from that film would not have occurred to me. And so I learned from that, like and people reacting to that kind of counterpoint, which is that's as counterpoint as it gets that that 
works. And I kind of realized how music that's different than the images can really frame the images and make it and make them more powerful. And I use that very much in Mad God, pretty much the whole thing. And a lot. I mean, I've done I, there's certain points where I, you have to do movie music the way it's supposed to be. Um, and so I, I know and I've learned when to do that. Um, but for the most part, that's why people come to me. Is they, or that's the way often the people will want that kind of alternative take on their films.
it was no you know noted widely that uh, Richard Beggs, a legendary sound designer, was eventually brought on board as well for Mad God. Um, so I assume you probably had a lot of working with him. I know you're a sound designer as well, right? Yes. So how how did that interplay <laughs> with each other? Were you guys working together quite a bit? Well, once again, all roads lead back to Alex Cox. He uh, Richard was a sound. I think the music editor or the music mixer and perhaps also the dialogue mixer on Repo Man. And so he had met back there and they got along really well. Um, and they stayed in touch over the years. And he wanted, I think he, he, he wanted to do Sid and Nancy. It just didn't work out because that's when I met Richard was in the Sid and Nancy days. And I know that we saw a lot of stuff. Like I, I remember the first time I ever saw the rough cuts of Sid and Nancy was at Richard's house. But, um, but anyway, they stayed in touch. Richard when the, went on to do the film Walker, an Alex Cox film that Joe Strummer did the score for. They, and they got along really well. But um, So they stayed in touch. And um, eventually he did a film called Three Businessmen um, that I did the score for. Um, that uh, He managed to get Richard involved with that as well. And so I, from there, and then I stayed in touch. They're both sort of San Francisco and they... There's a lot of stuff sort of in common. Um, and so I've been sort of friends with him since then and went on for quite a while. And I, I kind of, and I was working on something with Alex, um, with Richard, um, that Tippett was involved in. And I and I sort of just made sure, see, went to see if Richard was interested in, it, in working on Mad God. And he was. And so Phil, they, they got together and talked about it. And he agreed to do, to work on Mad God as well. And Mad God is, it is a brilliant soundtrack is from the from the from a sound design perspective he, he Richard worked really hard on it I mean I worked hard on the score but Richard really went down a rabbit hole of of detail and I mean it's a film without dialogue and so he has a lot of room as I did um, but he really went went to town just making everything perfect in that film and so it really is a masterpiece of sound design it is a very much a theater experience and so I would hope people can seek it out in a, in a theater environment but Richard did a great job on it and it was just a pleasure working with him and he, he ended up doing he ended up hearing the score often before tip before Phil would um, just because he was we would there'd be a lot of back and forth which I don't get the luxury of with most sound is most I don't even hear the sound design until it comes out um, but with Richard there was a lot of a lot of back and forth so I could hear what he was doing and he could hear what I was doing and so we could kind of stay off of each other yeah, and so it was just it was much more collaborative than any other sound design experience that I've ever had as far as work as a composer. Because yeah, you guys both are driving the sound for eighty three minutes. Yeah, and it's also was real a big weird technical thing. It's without dialogue, it's like where the mu- the level of the movie. It's like where how loud because a lot the dialogue generally you know drives the boat when it, you're the, the that the dialogue level, and without that, there was lots of lots of sort of trying to figure out where the. The, the sound should play as far as the level goes. So that was a challenge. Did you learn anything from him that will help you on your next uh, sound design gig? Oh, yeah. I mean, Richard, I mean, yeah, he, he is uh, he is a mentor in many ways. He has a, a lot of information. He's very generous with his time and with his, in, and with his information. He, and he knows all these various tricks. And, yeah, he's got a lot of ideas about, about how to go about it. He is very much conceptual. I mean, he's... It, he, has all the technical skills as well but his 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 strength is that he has um the idea of of getting a concept going as far as the sound design goes he's very much uh, he works conceptually he also has a, a fine arts background um 
you know, so he was an artist, like a painter before he was a sound designer. And so that and that comes across in a lot of ways as his approach. Um, and he has a much more sort of zoomed out approach to the sound and uses it keeps a, the eye, his eye on the entire project while it's while it's going rather as well as the the, the, the you know, the minute by minute sound needs. It's like and Phil Tippett, he's also more or less self-taught, right? He went to art school, not he didn't study animation. He kind of learned through jobs and doing things on his own and figuring it out right and yeah i think that he i think that he did he was doing his own stuff and i think that's why he went to art school and there was a a, a very good arts program apparently in san diego that he he fell into um but yeah mostly an arts background much all, always been that for him as well yeah and so phil and him they they really they really got along really well so they have again very sort of similar sort similar of background. world outlooks and a lot of a lot of similar ideas you had mentioned off mic that uh that he basically, uh, Richard Beggs, he has a lot of his old equipment from back in the day, like the apocalypse nowadays, he has like it. synths and things like that. Well, he has the, he has the Moog. The Moog is around. It's like the Moog. That, so the, in Apocalypse Now, as you may recall, there a lot of the sound design is, it's the helicopters and there's a lot of stuff that was used and the Moog was very new at the time, or eh, actually, when, when, yeah. anyway, it was a newer instrument at the time. Comparatively. Um, <laughs> yeah, comparatively. And so he, and it was never used in sound design, and I, I don't think, or very rarely until that point. And so he, he had that up front and used that very much as the, as a, as a go-to weird sound maker uh, for that film. So he has the original Moog that he has from those days. I don't know if he has, no, he's got a, like a Nagra, he got like old tape Nagras that he keeps around just for nostalgia but i think out in the blog world there there's you know there's like websites where they have just like the the moog sounds from apocalypse now you know like isolated tracks and things like that oh that's very cool yeah no but i mean but that's but richard's full on like modern as it gets when you go to a studio it's very he's very clean he's a very clean man and his studio is very clean and it's very based in la or no he's here he's up there too yeah. yeah Yeah, and he used to be. Yeah, he's sort of. Yeah, so he's easy to get, easily accessible for me. So I go. I would go there. I actually went there a lot during. He was the only person that I actually spoke to during COVID for a lot of the time. Um, <laughs> and when, the first person I saw after COVID, because we were that was when Mad God was kind of coming together. And so I spent quite a bit of time over there at his place because he's got a his studio here in the he live, he's in the Hate, and that's where his studio is. Did you do a lot of this work during COVID, or was it mostly done kind of prior? to lockdown yes time is a weird thing these days but uh, yeah a lot of there was quite a bit of work done at a certain point there was looks like we were trying to submit for festivals and that was i think at the end of covid or not the end of covid we're not there yet but the beginning of 2021 is so we got accepted to to locarno film festival in switzerland and that and, and a lot of work sort of cleaning up stuff mixing stuff fi- finishing up things that were that were done not a lot of composition the 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 yodel thing at the end um was was done um in that time period but um for the most part everything was pretty much ready to go the weird thing about mad god it's a strange project and then it really didn't have deadlines it would it would unlike any other film ever made um, everybody sort of worked on their on their weekends, and there's it was very much that kind of project where everybody was working on their own, um, and so there was no real reason to stop or start. It was it's very strange and so and kind of difficult to sometimes to get going on it because you know it could be months or before uh, whatever it is you're working on would be heard. So, but it is this very strange, very strange 
were you using outside musicians for anything or was it all is everything more or less you besides the yodeling and, and things like that yeah just the yodelers everything else everything else is me i don't sure at a certain point i made the decision i thought about other there's no reason i shouldn't i could have i could have used other people but it seemed to all be working and yeah i don't know it all i mean there was no real budget for this for this <laughs> thing but I probably could have gotten, you know, interest people interested, but it just seemed it just made sense and it was working, so I just went for whatever reason. I just used it's just all me. Are um, you feeling the enthusiasm for this soundtrack? I know, you know, Waxwork must have contacted you. How did that come about? They did. Somebody from from Waxwork um they contacted me, but I had a short list of people I thought that we could I could do an album for myself or do it myself. And I had a short list of labels that I was gonna go for with and, and Waxworks I mean Waxwork um was on the short list and so but they 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 beat me to it and they 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 called me and they're super great to work with and I and I loved everything about that about that experience. So they they were really enthusiastic about the soundtrack. And, and still are. The guys, I know they're big fans of, of certain genres. Yeah, so Locarno, and it wasn't clear to me, I, maybe, I don't even think it was clear to Phil or anybody that this is going to hit it in the horror genre. Waxwork is a is a horror, mostly a horror label. I mean, they do horror soundtracks. That's pretty much what they do. Um, I don't think it occurred to anybody. Else. I mean, it might seem strange to, to other people because of all the dark imagery, but I didn't realize how much of a horror genre this would how how it would resonate in that community, but it really did. And before I knew it, waxwork is is calling. So, um, um, yeah, I, it really is apparently really big in that. In that Shutter is considered kind of a horror streaming service too, right? For yeah, the most part. I so, so I guess yeah, it's resonating. I guess it's the post-apocalyptic kind of nature of it. Or uh, there's a little sci-fi to it. There's a little. I don't know. Well, there's a lot of blood and poop. Yeah. <laughs> and so that, that makes people think it's horror. Guts and, yeah, strange things <laughs> <Guts> being <laughs> yeah. squeezed yeah. out. <laughs> Live dissections. So, yeah, I don't know. I think I think it makes sense. Not that far-fetched. But also, like, uh, at this point in your career, how how odd is it that, like, vinyl is back? And, um, <laughs> I mean, you're a technology <laughs> yeah. guy, I, I, I'm assuming, you know, staying in the industry yeah. all these years and keeping with it and then you know, whatever it is, the last 10 plus years, vinyl's back. And now it's very important to actually release this on vinyl rather than CD or MP3s or whatever, right? Yeah. I mean, it is also released on those as well. But yeah, no, it is interesting. And it's mostly, as somebody who remembers records, it's like mostly holding it. It's like mostly the some, the sculptural component of it. Having something to hold is what I like about it. it, it the sound-wise, I'm not the guy that thinks vinyl sounds better. I don't think that. Um, it's just different. It's very comforting. It has a different sound to it. But there is something legitimate about having a album and then a double album that, that just makes it all feel very real. So everybody is excited about it. Everybody, you know, even the people, all the filmmakers involved <laughs> are excited about the soundtrack, just having one in their hand. It looks amazing, yeah, too. I mean, it's not just a record. Yeah. It's 180 gram and it has a splatter coloring to it. And Yeah, Waxwork does that stuff really well, all that packaging. That's their, that's their deal. And then I think like a lot of information inside as well, right? Some... Yeah, pretty much everything I've been telling you about <laughs> that guy is... It's like I wrote down. It's all explained, right? It's all explained. <laughs> what uh, What's next? Does this is this leading to some new opportunities in animation or collaborations with Phil or anybody else involved? 
we'll see. Phil has a f- several projects that they're like in his. He's, the Phil does not stop with the ideas. Um, they're all kind of nascent in at this point. Um, I do other work for that company. I mean, I have I have a very strange, as I said, a long winding strange career so the another one of the things i do for my day job essentially is work i do they do theme park and dark ride um media and so they're which has a sound component and so i'm doing a lot of my sound design work is doing theme park and dark rides uh for tippet studio oh nice and so i that there's a bunch of work coming down i've done a few with them a few dark rides up various types of fly rides and there's a few more of those coming down and so that's sort of the main front burner thing and then i have um and then I also do a lot of contemporary dance, which is I got a, a work with Liz Fain Dance for a performance for her in uh, November, I think. So I'm working on that. And then there's other Mad God related content that they're doing for Shudder that I'm working on. So there's stuff coming down. Is any of this causing uh, any sort of resurgence or of interest for Pray for Rain? Uh, no, not that, not that it's, I don't know if it's that much different than you solo as a composer, but. No, I mean, well, I, I should say the Pray for Rain, in, in the beginning, it, it was collaborative, not so much Sid Nancy Straight to Hell, I, I wrote all that stuff, but we went on and did a lot of TV and a lot of various films that we did very, very collaboratively, um, including Alex Cox's Death in the Compass, which is a really great film. That was very much a collaborative thing. So I worked with James Woody and Gary Brown quite a very closely on, on on a lot of the projects up to a certain point and then again life kind of gets complicated and and then I end up doing everything since in the since the 2000s I guess it's been all just just me doing it the pray for rain there's not a huge resurgence there even though I think that uh, Sid and Nancy was on Turner Classic Movies the idea the other day so the other day, uh Xander Schloss was he a member of that or not uh or just a collaborator Oh no, he wasn't a prayer. Yeah, he's like yeah. you know, Xander Schloss is my stepbrother, brother. I mean, he's yeah. for, for a long time. He's also the bass player on the Circle Jerks. Um, Weirdos. He played. <laughs> I just remembered he played on the Pray for Rain soundtrack. Yeah. Um, for for Sid and Nancy, he played the guitar like with the strummy guitar. I don't know why he did, but I just remember that he. did. You didn't write salsa e ketchup, right? <laughs> no, no, that's that's all Xander. And Xander has saw, and Xander has. He's also a composer. Um, he also worked with Alex Cox. Did a film called Highway Patrolman. Uh, he did the score for that film. Um, so we're all connected to him. Is your sister still working in the film world? No, she she hated it the whole time she was doing it, and she decided she realized that after she was in up to her neck in it. <laughs> And got out of it like in a big way. So um, no, she she had a bad experience. <laughs> right, right, right. It's a tough. Yeah. I mean, it's a really tough, especially it's if you're wh- a filmmaker. Yeah, it's worse than music potentially, right? <laughs> well, it's harder. There is... It's more demanding. More money being you know pressuring you and things like that. Yeah, and you're also dealing with like lots of people, like lots of like you know you know authority. And with her, she worked with a. Uh, with the studio and so the studio was really became really difficult and had demands and she had really specific like very pure ideas and they had their own ideas it just became just became a just a litany of cliche hollywood cliches about studio demands under her project which i mean and roadside profits with her film is it came out really good i mean there's some stuff in it that everybody wishes wasn't in there that was sort of imposed by the studio, but it is a really nice film and there's a lot of great stuff in that, in that piece and it should be sought out and it should be on the list of best road films because that's what it is. It's a really interesting sort of cerebral road movie. 
I wanted to sort of go back and revisit a bunch of these films because I hadn't seen them probably 20 plus years. I know I've rewatched them since the first time, but as yeah. time just cruises by so quickly. But I started uh, Roadside Prophets and it's like, looks really good. And like, you know, it's the acting, you know, even though it's a lot of musician types, like a lot of it's pretty good. And then John Doe's convincing. <laughs> um, yeah, John Doe's in it. John Cusack shows up in it. Timothy Leary's in that movie. Like, Arlo uh, Guthrie. Uh, Arlo Guthrie shows yeah, up in it. Some funny yeah. people. Um, and the music's nice too. It's, you know, like yeah, revisiting yeah. that too. So, you know, I thank you so much for your time and, and, and willingness to come on and I'm excited to see what happens with the score. I think, uh, you know, people will eventually, and anybody that I've turned on to it seems to really, really love it. And um, oh, great. I kind of assume there's going to be a new life for it. I guess maybe there's that one more question. Would you ever, could you ever see yourself uh, like performing it live since it doesn't really require the dialogue and things like that? I guess the sound design, you could get that, get the music stripped out and do like a live score, which I know is more and more popular these days. And no, Pray I, for I, Rain I, was a band. <laughs> it was a band, but it is interesting how much I just do not have any interest in it at all. I mean, yeah. the, I, the idea of performing, the actual performing sounds fun. And I remember that. But <laughs> virtually everything else about performing is horrible. And I don't miss it at all. Scheduling um, practices and <laughs> yeah, and uh, there's just there's many stressful things that occur that I don't miss at all, and I, I'm very comfortable just staying back here. If somebody wanted to perform it for me, I'll hand over the music and they can do that. Yeah. But I have no interest in performing. It's been quite a while, and I made that decision and it, deliberately at a certain point that performing is behind me. Yeah, my prediction is you will be contacted for that. <laughs> okay, <laughs> to either do it or try to convince you. Yeah, <laughs> I guess if you pay me. <laughs> that's how it works. <laughs> yeah, that's how it works. Uh, but you would have to, I'm trying to avoid it. I don't know, over 10 years ago, I interviewed Danny Elfman, and he said kind of like, absolutely no interest in performing uh-huh. live anymore. Hurts my ears. And now? Just, and now he's like world touring it, like the Tim Burton thing and the... Mm. But it must pay it pretty be, well. It, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it would be interesting. I mean, I mean, there is, and I've thought about it, like just having somebody else do. If somebody, I mean, or I mean, it's it's not that difficult. It's very simple music in in Mad God. Yeah, um, there's no reason that it it couldn't be couldn't. performed. Yeah, it doesn't so have to be perfect, right? Like it doesn't have to be exact. Like no. It could be almost a variation of how you're feeling that day. Yeah, it, <laughs> you know? it's very it's very performable. But I mean, it's also but it's also very ambient. I mean, there's a lot of stuff where just kind of things are floating around, which I'm not sure how interesting it would be as a performance. As a listener, as a you know, as a, a, a film lover and a music lover, I think it would be pretty ripe for it. And I think that there would be some uh, like an audience for it. You know, what I mean, with time, as this as, as more and people get. Uh, get to see this film and, and get acquainted with the soundtrack. I think, I mean, I hate to say it, but the the music is so important. It's equally as important. It could, it could have sunk it, you know, or. Yeah, it's true. You, I could have easily <laughs> ruined that movie, but uh, yeah, no, it, it, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, it, there's no reason why it couldn't be performed, but it, it, we'll see. Yeah. I mean, I guess if the circumstances were right, but I can't imagine what I want to see be. it. Yeah, but so what would you see? What would you expect to see? A bunch of synthesizers on stage, or and a guitar and a piano? I don't know. Who knows if it matters? I don't know if it even matters, because the lights are out, right? It could be done. You know, I think you would have a 
some keyboard thing going on at times and switching sounds and things like that. But you'd probably you probably want to have some other musicians playing. Well, I, I mean, like and, a, I mean, there, it could be, or we could have an orchestral version of it too, which would be oh, yeah. interesting. So you'd have the the prepared piano person over here on the left and the uh-huh. <laughs> a yodeler on the right. No, I don't know. <laughs> Oh yeah, the yodeler. That we could just do the yodeling thing. It's very short, however, so that wouldn't work. But yeah, thanks so much. And yeah, it's a beautiful piece okay. of music. And uh, I'm getting my uh, my order in. Oh great! All right, thanks again, and and hopefully talk soon. Okay, Devin, thanks.